0: Hey there, and welcome to a Clean Bill of wealth podcast. I'm your host, Galen all Thanks for joining me today. This is a podcast where I cover topics of importance for Canadian physicians, sometimes financial and sometimes other aspects of life like health and well-being and relationships and side hustles. And if you haven't already, be sure to go to galenhelpsdocs.com to join the free financial literacy challenge for Canadian physicians. That's at helpsdocs.com. Be sure to check it out. And if you've already done it, be sure to fill out the form at the end where you can claim your free prize after having completed the modules. That's a place online where I answer a lot of the top questions I get behind closed doors around financial planning for physicians. I cover a lot of the misconceptions and mistakes that I see people making. So be sure to check that out. And now on with the show. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Clean Bill of Wealth Podcast. Tonight, I am joined by Dr. Michelle Cohen. And Dr. Cohen is a family physician in Brighton and an assistant professor at Queen's University, whose area of expertise is gender pay gap in medicine. So that is something we're going to talk about tonight, about what it is, where it manifests itself, and what to do about it. And certainly something that I am very unaware of as an outsider looking at the world of medicine so I'm very interested in hearing um, the research and the findings and what you found so thank you so much for joining me dr Cohen thanks for having me and so one of the things I like to start with is just how, how how did this happen like did you did you expect to dive into this topic of the gender pay gap in medicine was it something you know you'd always champion for or like you know what got you so interested in this subject and looking at it
1: So yeah, I definitely wasn't focused on this specific subject, um, but I have done some writing and some work on equity in medicine and and sexism in medicine and women's issues uh, for women in medicine. So uh, the way I got into it is I was invited to give a talk to some med students on issues for women in medicine. And so I'm going through kind of preparing my slide deck and looking at the various uh, issues that come up as as women go through med school and and into their careers. Um, And I got to the gender pay gap and was looking through all the research and preparing my slides and realized just how little of it came from Canada, how most of it was, from, was in the US um, and also in the UK, and how far along those medical associations in those countries were in addressing that issue and dealing with that issue. And in Canada, even though it was a topic that female physicians discussed a lot amongst their, them, themselves, like amongst mm-hmm. ourselves in, in smaller groups and kind of informal settings and online and in, uh, on, you know, in our own uh, female-specific groups... It was not really something that had been addressed in academically, so I prepared my talk. I put in the slide the, the you know data that I needed. I did a little bit of an analysis myself, and then afterwards, it just it just kept I just kept thinking about it, and thinking about it, thinking about how little there was out there, and how I had already put together something that was at least worth looking at or, or considering publishing. And then I just started to dig into it, and and, uh, and realized just what a whole wide open field this is. And it's really really interesting once you start digging into it. What you find.
0: Yeah. And, you know, maybe, uh, you know, spoiler alert, you did find there is a gap. Yeah,
1: there is a gap. There's a substantial gap. Um, and it's, it's hard to exactly quantify because we don't have perfect transparency in our uh, income reporting for physicians. So mm. there's always a little bit of a, of a like X factor, a little bit of a just you know, black box that we don't have the data for, but the data that we have is very convincing and very um, consistent. And it's consistent with what we're seeing in other countries as well, where there there may be in some situations more transparent data than others. So, the consistency, the fact that it's it's similar across multiple different payment models in different payment structures, um, throughout different specialties, and uh, agrees with much of the research that is uh, international, uh, whether when there are payment models that are similar to ours and when they're not, um, really is, is just quite convincing that this is a real problem and it's it's time to start addressing it. And as Canadian, Canadian medical establishments really lagged behind compared to our peers. So, so that's kind of just been my, my cause since then, since discovering that, to, to try to contribute some of that data so that we can get the ball rolling and start having this conversation, start pushing for the uh, official conversation rather than just sort of like behind the scenes, you know, MD lounge kind of between amongst ourselves, female colleagues kind of conversation, which is
0: where it had been before. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like taking it from that closed sort of behind closed doors conversation out in the open. And so one of the things for for me is now, I mean, I'm not a doctor and uh, outside looking in when, so, I mean, we got introduced through Dr. Milne, who I interviewed and he's, we started talking, I asked him, I said, what do you really want to make sure we touch on? He said, the gender pay gap. And we started talking about it and eventually he's like, you know what? I'm not the expert get Doctor going on here. And talk about it. <laughs> now from the outside looking in, I am oblivious to, you know, sort of what goes behind this because in my mind I'm thinking you're a doctor, you're going to bill your provincial plan, you're going to bill for a procedure, you're going to get paid, like what could possibly cause the gap and like many things I imagine it's a multi-layered issue. It's not so straightforward as we're all billing the same stuff. We're all making mm-hmm. the same money. Like there must be some other layers to it that I'm not, that I don't know about.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, that is often the, the kind of knee jerk response is well, we're all just using the same, or most of us. We're not all using what we call fee for service billing model, but the majority of us are. So um, that's kind of the, the instant rebuttal is well, we're all just using doing fee for service. So if you're billing less, that means you're seeing less. Um, but there are many more layers to it than that. Um, so ultimately, it comes down to women in medicine doing different work than men in medicine do. So we see different patients. By and large, we take care of more female patients than uh, male physicians do for a number of reasons um we tend to have longer visits than male physicians do we tend to address different issues there tend to be a bit more um, psychosocial support more counseling offered less procedural work um, and we tend to address multiple issues in one visit whereas your standard fee-for-service model was kind of designed around the idea that you would deliver one service you build one code and then you're done um, so the way to to make money you know to wait the way to Make in make a high income in medicine is to bill as many of those codes as possible, and to do you know one service per one patient, and kind of stack those things together throughout your day. And the longer you spend with patients, the more issues you address in a visit, uh, the lower you're going to lower your income is going to be overall, because of course you only get it paid for addressing that one issue. You only get you only are allowed to bill for one code, um, by and large. That's not always true, but that's mostly true. You're only allowed to bill for one code. So what what we've found is that female physicians tend to address more issues and though and and in that sense are doing some degree of unpaid work when they're when they're seeing their patients so uh, you know a number of these things kind of stack together over overall Um, we also and that ultimately leads to a gap we also see that women end up in different specialties than men do uh, we have female dominated specialties and we have male dominated specialties. And one of the things we did just that I, I worked on just uh, in the past year and published in our Medical Association journal um, was an analysis of where the female dominated specialties and the male dominated specialties sit on the income, like they sit on, a, you know, if you measure out everyone's income. And we found that male dominated specialties tend to kind of cluster in the higher income range. And, and the opposite was true for the female dominated specialty. So there's lots of different layers to this, um, which is why it's not that it's not a very, uh, it can be a kind of a tricky issue to understand or it can be something that gets easily dismissed because, you know, while we just, you, you know, you, you do, you do a service and you build that service. And, and therefore, that's obviously the reason that there's a gap, but, but it's a bit more complicated than that, ultimately.
0: Right. And definitely. I mean, cause what I, what I, I, is it pretty much 50, 50, like, um, for you know, Almost. male, yeah. male, female coming out of med, med school. It's pretty much,
1: Well, so in the younger groups, women are actually have been overrepresented in Mm -hmm. the younger. So for about about a generation, I think it was the mid 90s, um, women passed parity in med school. Mm -hmm. So you know, women in the so in the younger uh, percentage, proportion of physicians that is female dominated. But overall, I think we are about
0: 42 or 43 percent female in the country. Okay, got it. Uh, Averaging for the different Mm -hmm. generations that have gone through, got it. But it's not they're not congregating in similar percentages in the specialties.
1: Right. Yeah. So it, it exactly. So as women have moved into medicine in, in pretty substantial numbers, since about like the seventies, that movement has not been equal across the specialties. So women have moved into some specialties in much larger numbers than others to the point where some specialties are now kind of considered female specialties or, or where women you know, belong or where women are happiest or often the, the you know, that doesn't tend to be quite as overt and sexist as that. What the term you hear a lot is family friendly. You know, that specialty is family friendly and you might like it there, you know, when you're a med student and you're considering what specialty you want to go into. You get a lot of advice about when you're a woman, you get a lot of advice about which the family friendly specialties are and where women tend to like to go. Um, and and there are some specialties that have over the past, you know, 40 years or so remained very male dominated where there's been very little movement of women and those also tend to be the specialties that we see the highest income um, when we look for the for the gap. So it's a, been a kind of interesting process to, to figure out why that's happening um, and, and try to do some. I think we're just at the beginning of digging into
0: some research to figure out how that's happened over time. Right. And so in a sense, it could be that even though. Um, a female physician may have interest in a specialty. It's, you know, hearing potentially during med school or residency, like, oh, no, it's not family friendly, but family friendly. I mean, you're meaning that if you're going to raise children and whatnot, exactly. like this is going to be mm-hmm. harder for you because we're going to assume that you're going to take the, the bulk of the responsibility for raising children or something like that.
1: Yeah, things like that family friendly, the specialty has really long hours, this, you know, people find it difficult, you got to be like a big strong guy, there's a lot of comments about uh, physical strength, you know, certain specialties, you just like, this is really physical work, and you just got to be a big guy to do it. And you just got to be able to like be on your feet long hours and use your hands and just it's really tough. And you know, and if you're just not built for it, then you're just not going to do it. And, and there's those comments like that sometimes overt, sometimes really, really subtle, um, you know, and there's also just a sort of culture uh, and often, often surgery has certain surgical specialties can have or certain departments can have kind of a macho culture as well mm-hmm. that can be kind of exclusionary for, for women and for some men too can feel a bit oh. excluded by that culture. So that can also lead to, you know, people feeling like certain places are just not for them and they just belong somewhere else
0: yeah i can definitely i can definitely see that in the sense of like um you know not not wanting like being young and starting out and starting to figure out what specialty because there's so many things to consider right with, mm-hmm. like am i going to enjoy it is it a specialty that's that that is going to be um you know diminishing over time like there's so many factors so i'm sure one of you know are the people that are already doing this people that i can relate to are they people that are like part of kind of my group already or not that's got to have some impact on that and um, so I have I have wandered down a bit of a rabbit hole on YouTube around this topic, maybe not inside of medicine, but in general. And what I hear people say is they say, well, if, you know, this is one of the things I hear said, this is not me saying it, uh, is, well, women are the one, they, they tend not to, um, you know, pursue uh, certain careers, or they tend not to pursue, or they stay home with children. They make a choice to have children. They make a choice to stay home with them, you know. And so it's like, okay, of course, if you're going to miss three years of work or five years of work because of maternity leave, of course you're not going to make as much money. Like that. So those are the kinds of things I've heard, and I'm assuming it's not quite so simple. Or, or is that in fact like, is that even like a very superficial knee-jerk reaction to? Well, we've also created a system that doesn't reward the act of like, you know. Perpetuating (laughs) (laughs) propaganda.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we see again that women tend to do a lot of unpaid work in the home, too. You know, there's that second shift phenomenon where women, even who work full time, even when they're breadwinners in their household, will still come home and do a whole bunch of unpaid work, domestic work, whether or not they have kids. There's still a certain amount of domestic work that just needs to be done in in a given household. And um, when we look at dual physician families, we find that even when they're working roughly similar hours, female physicians are still doing a certain amount of unpaid work. When they get home, so you know we can talk about yeah, yeah these are individual choices um, that people are making. But the the sorts of choices exist within uh, a system. And it's, you know, you're not going to go and bang your head against the system like a brick wall every single day of your life. That's going to be an incredibly difficult life. Um, That's not going to give you any any sort of advantages. So, you know, you have to be mindful of the kinds of the system that you're in and the choices that you're making are influenced by your system. Um, And particularly when it comes to specialty selection or advancement in medicine, it's such an incredibly hierarchical system. You're Mm. so influenced by the messages that you're receiving and by this notion that, you know, you have to be, you have to fit within the culture to be a physician. So um, there's very much a, a, an influence of you know just following the the seniors ahead of you and and m- using them as your role models for how to behave in medicine. And we talk a lot about like professionalism and role modeling our professionalism. And, and and I think there's professionalism is important in in our profession for sure. But to some extent, that's also about modeling cultural ideas of what we think are appropriate in our profession. And those ideas, when they're unexamined, are really heavily influenced by our history. The medicine's history of white supremacy, of patriarchy, of misogyny, of all kinds of inequities between um, many, you know, different groups of people. So uh, we have to be aware of how. This sort of culture can influence the people in the culture, especially when we're talking about learners who are absorbing all this like sponges and trying to find their place Mm. in it and trying to figure out where they belong or junior physicians trying to, you know, work their way to the top. You're never going to get to be the top in your department or your division or take on a leadership role if you don't fit into that cultural mold, mold, mold as well that's been laid out for you. So. Those sorts of things influence our choices. There's there's no way that we're completely, completely free to decide, you know, I want to do a certain amount of unpaid domestic work at home and miss out on a really good leadership opportunity that's paid because that's just a choice I'm making and I'm free in that choice. You know, there's so many influences in, in the way between me and that choice. Yeah.
0: Uh. And, and definitely like what you had, you know, what you said about examining it, like if it's if it goes unexamined then it's just going to be sort of like this is the way we've always done it sort of a situation. And this is just the way it's done sort of thing. And I mean, I know I was med for a very short and very ugly period of my life. And um, one of the things that got me uninterested in continuing was I was doing an internship at a hospital in New York City and um, like a pre-med internship. And someone said, has anyone ever sat y'all down and told you what residency is like? And we're like, no. And he's like, okay, cool. Like I made minimum wage for during residency if you added up all the hours I was working. And, you know, I remember seeing a cot in like the lounge where people were going to sleep and shifts and stuff. And I was like, I don't think I can do that. Like, I like, I that. <laughs> yeah. So that being said, I mean, and so sorry, so the, the person who said this to us said it may... Start Start changing Because this has been less out of necessity, more out of sort of a, almost a hazing. He referred to it as this is kind of like a ritual of we had to do this. You're going to have to do it, too. Now I'm top dog. I'm going to make you work this way. So I imagine that this bleeds over. As in a lot of systems, this type of thing would bleed over, like not just in the world of physicians, but like, okay, this is the way we've done it. I had to do this. You're going to have to do it too. This is the system we all signed up for. So, I mean, you're looking at, let's examine this and let's, let's actually question whether this is the way it has to be done.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We we talk a lot uh, in medicine about you know how do we improve our work life balance and how do we deal with wellness and and burnout and we need to make become more resilient and and we use a lot of those like buzzwords around wellness and mental health and stuff in medicine and I think a lot of it is about examining this uh, kind of sick culture of. of the hazing and and punishment and this intensely strict hierarchy um, and this very very imbalanced power dynamic that we all train in and 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 this culture of kind of denying our own humanity. These really intensely long hours and very physically brutal work. You know and and people are still like someone was just someone just posted something on t- something tweeted something about um, asking on her rotation to go for lunch and she's like okay sure but you know lunch is for the week right you know that right oh, <laughs> like, wow. and it's a comment that's being made to. Uh, to a trainee like right now um, on, a, on a rotation that, that lunches for the week meeting like a basic physical need is, is oh, somehow no. diminishes you you know so
0: lunch. yeah this is, <laughs> right? that's wild yeah because yeah. of course being hungry and light makes you a better
1: <laughs> makes you a better doctor right better yeah it's like, Your patients up, want like to see... 40 hours straight makes you a better doctor
0: right? <laughs> wow that's wild yeah No, I mean and, and I have met like I have um, a, a number of clients who have transitioned from residency to practice this year and um, obviously it's a rough year for, you know, certain specialties Mm -hmm. to be in a system and play in specific geographical locations that are inundated with patients and people coming at the last minute rather than earlier on because of COVID. And, um, Mm -hmm. but I did, yeah, I mean, I've had residents tell me like, um, you know, they're like, I don't know if I can keep doing, or sorry, new physicians. Like, I don't know if I can keep doing this, Galen. Like, I mean, they're talking about how they're not eating properly. They're not sleeping properly. Their quality of life is really tough. And I also feel like in a lot of cases, I don't feel like they necessarily feel like they can say it out loud or publicly all that much either. Because it's almost like, you know, I'm supposed to be this like perfect doctor and not not have to be hungry or anything. Yeah, like, yeah. No I physical doors, needs. I'm yeah. like, I, like, I had a meeting a bit ago and I like lost sleep that night because I felt so bad for this person. Like after my shift, you know, they're like, after my shift, I sit in my car and cry because I'm so overwhelmed. And I'm like, this is brutal. Like, this sounds mm-hmm. so brutal.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it is absolutely and then and then we ask ourselves like what is where's is the humanity in our profession it's like <laughs> we're we're beating it out of our trainees at the earliest level and we're making sure that nobody you know asks for help or ask, or complains of being tired or or says they need to have lunch or something we build our you know perpetuate the same model um yeah and then we wonder why burnout is so high and you know why, why we need to have all these like wellness discussions about <laughs> our mental health and stuff yeah absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely it's-
0: it's definitely that. Um, I, don't know. I mean, so my dad's a doctor and um, I felt like certainly, you know, when I was a kid growing up, it was like a, a profession where, you know, it was like, oh, can't can't look like you don't know something or can't look like you. And I know this isn't 100% everywhere, but it's like, you know, have to have the answer or have to have, you know, something and, um, you know, not showing weakness or uh, sort of being in that elevated position that, on that pedestal. And it's got to be a tough whether externally or internally imposed, a tough place to live um, Mm -hmm. for these expectations. Um, One of the things you mentioned in our conversation before we got started was you said even specific billing procedures have a bit of gender inequity built into them in some cases. I was wondering if you could... Um, talk about that a bit because I found that fascinating.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. So there's always the, uh, again, other again another unexamined assumption that our schedule of benefits, which is all of the um, the fee codes given to the various services, that that is, that is gender neutral and that there's no bias in there. And, and I think that's just an assumption that we make because we've never looked to see if there is any bias. So, for example, when I was looking, when I was writing uh, my paper for um, the uh, CMAG, um, looking through the schedule of benefits, comparing your... Urology codes to gynecology codes, so codes that would typically be done for men versus codes that would typically be performed on women. And there's a pretty similar sounding procedure done on a vulva that you bill $50 for, and there's a similar sounding, for, very similar uh, procedure on a scrotum that you bill $99 for. Um, so twice, twice the fee, twice the fee. And there are other examples of this, but this was the most glaring one that, that jumped out at me when I was putting putting together uh, our paper. Um, yeah, so you know, twice as much. And certainly there can be differences, small differences, or different. In Anatomy, might be different procedures, but for one procedure to be hundred uh, <laughs> percent what the other higher than the other one seems excessive, excessive for, for a gap. And and we look overall, urology is uh, a, much high, a much more highly remunerated specialty overall compared to gynecology, which has been kind of sliding downhill, um, you know, arguably since women became dominant in the specialty which mm-hmm. is one of the things you know we're, we're looking into. A really interesting study uh, also out of Ontario, I think it was 2019, looked at the work that women and men were doing just in the OR. So just looking at surgeons, male surgeons and female surgeons across a bunch of different specialties, and they controlled for the number of hours that they were in the OR, and they found that they were performing procedures at roughly the same efficiency. So they it wasn't that the women were seeing fewer patients and performing fewer procedures. They were billing roughly the same number of procedures, and they found a 24% gap. 24% gap, and they converted it basically into an hourly amount that you're making for being in the OR. So women in the OR, spending an entire day on the OR, on their feet, operating, you know, seeing the roughly the same number of patients, and yet making 24% less. And what they found was the difference was that women were simply billing less lucrative procedures. So they were still working just as much, and they were still seeing just as many patients, but they were pre- they were seeing female patients more often, and the procedures that they tended to bill tended to be the least lucrative ones. So I you know I don't think we can say for certain that the schedule of benefits has no bias or is completely gender neutral if we have women billing procedures that are just much much less lucrative than the procedures that men tend to bill so all of that needs to be studied in much much more detail um, we, we basically we need a gender-based
0: analysis of our schedule of benefits sure because as you were as you're you giving that example I'm just sitting here wondering like how on earth can you account for the, the difference if it's like you've controlled yeah. from so many variables that they're still there and I mean, it is interesting in the sense that, um, I mean, like, I don't know what the perfect system is, but obviously a system that is like, okay, we're gonna, you're going to be monetarily rewarded more for this than for that, and that's an active, I guess, to a certain extent, an active choice that can be made um, by the physician. Then it's, it's in some cases it's obviously going to skew someone towards, am I going to do this procedure, or am I going to do the one that takes the same amount of time, but I can make. For every dollar I make, I make an extra 24 cents um, by choosing this type of a procedure. I mean, like, I'm the kind of person that would be like too busy to even think about that, <laughs> or like, I would be like, whatever i need to do this procedure da, da, da. but then like 10 years later i might be, be like oh wow i made way less money over the last 10 years than i could have because i chose to do these specific procedures yeah so i
1: think i think to some degree that happens to female physicians is you know they get to like 15 20 years into their career and they look around at, at the work that their male colleagues have done and they look at the, their work and the work that their female colleagues have done and they and they feel cheated they feel like they've worked just as hard, and they've done a significant amount of unpaid or underpaid work, and they've missed out on advancement opportunities and leadership opportunities because there's still a very uh, strong um, old boys network when it comes to yeah. leadership roles and and advancement. There's a pretty st- still stubborn thick black glass ceiling, so a lot of that income is lost to women as well. Um, you know, so I think when, you know women look around and they look at all their years, many years they put into their profession, and they feel feel burnt out and cheated by. Uh, what's happened by the difference in, in what they are valued, how they're valued monetarily and how their male colleagues are valued.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, certainly, yeah, from that standpoint of, okay, mm-hmm. like at the end of the day, I've made, and that's a significant number. I mean, 24% That is a, mm-hmm. that's a huge difference. Like mm-hmm. I'm sitting here thinking like, cause I mean, from my, putting my financial planning hat on, it's like that's 24% less money to put towards retirement planning or anything really. Um, and then, of course, the, the the perception of value of like, you know, have I done the same job or have I been um, valuing? I mean, just to briefly touch upon something you said earlier, which was that the female the physicians tending to spend more time and covering more multiple, um, you know, issues at once. And it's kind of funny. I, I didn't know that about billing. And I remember... I had to meet with a dermatologist a while back. And since it was a specialist that took a really long time to get in front of, I really had a laundry list by the time I got in front of him. I'm like, <laughs> all right, these are all the things I got going on that I wanted to get taken care of because I might not see you again for six months. And um, it's kind of funny because he was probably like, get out of here. Like, you move along. I can't talk about so many things in one visit. Um, so um, sorry, when it comes to the idea of um, or the 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 research showing that a uh, female physicians spending more time covering more um, issues in one visit. Again, so it's a system that potentially does not reward that financially because it's like you're going to meet once, you're going to bill once, you're not going to be able to bill multiples. And even though it could be a, a more comprehensive visit that's going to help manage that person's health better, it's not going to translate to moneta- monetarily.
1: Yeah, exactly and and you know with respect to how we're you know, revisiting that idea of like individual choices that a physician is making to spend longer with a patient or you know to, to address multiple issues we also when we when we flip the perspective on on you know what is happening in that visit where someone is spending or a female physician is spending longer tending to spend longer uh, we see that patients also expect that from us so patients mm-hmm. expect female physicians to spend longer with them to provide more emotional support which just takes longer to address multiple issues they get upset uh, more upset when female uh, female physician cuts things short or is more abrupt or says you know i gotta go um you know that's that's it for the day um they're more forgiving when male physicians do that they assume that the male physician is busy and he's just got lots of stuff to do but female physician is expected to hang around and hold their hand and spend lots of time with them and give them lots of support and and do lots of extra little things and oh one more thing and one more thing and um so that affects how we practice as well so you know on the one hand it's it's what what we the way we seem to tend to practice as a group compared to to men and of course there are differences individually but it's also when you walk into the room and a patient sees a female doctor they just seem to come with a different set of expectations and that of course influences how we practice as well Mm -hmm. Um, and that's just one of the one of the systems that we're in or one of the situations we find ourselves in that we're making choices on in terms of how to practice and 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 how to uh, you know how to do our jobs
0: yeah and that's so quite interesting man that's like a big layer to put on top of everything because i mean you've Mm -hmm. talked about Uh, domestic balance in the household, gender, domestic balance. We've talked about now societal expectations, pay structure, fee structures, procedures, um, underrepresentation and specialties. So I can't help but wonder, you know, what can be done about this? (laughs) Cause I'm sure, you know, something can be done or some steps can be made to help, you know, put this back into balance. So what are some of those things that, that can be done and by whom?
1: So uh, I think that the things that people that we need to get most on the job here to resolve this issue are medical associations. So these are the people who represent us. Um, there are elected representatives, and they, they negotiate with the government on our behalf. They represent our financial interests to the government. Um, and, you know, every few years, every four years, roughly speaking, we negotiate a new contract with the government, and that's where we decide if those billings, if that schedule of benefits is going to be updated and how it's going to be updated. And looking back at the last, I was able to find the last couple of negotiation committees The committees formed on the OMA, our Ontario Medical Association, who negotiate with the Ontario government, Um, the one this year has uh, seven men and one woman on it. (laughs) The one from a couple of years back, it was a special other negotiation of an additional agreement. Again, just one woman on that committee. And and I think likely if you went back in time, given that women have not been a large presence on the OMA until fairly recently, I think you're going to find much the same that you have these committees, negotiation committees who are talking to the government about upgrading pay that are all male or maybe have one token woman on the committee. So we need better gender representation, better parity. If women are doing Certain types are more likely to build certain types of codes and less likely to build other types of codes. And then you don't include women in good numbers on a negotiation committee. Then all the work that they're doing is underrepresented, you know. So yeah, and 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 the work that other people are doing that men are doing is overrepresented. So I think that's part of the problem. So our medical associations need to do a better job of standing up for the almost half of the membership now that's female, um, and then the governments too need to need to step in and do something. So, um, for example, in the UK, the British government has actually mandated that the British Medical Association puts out um, a report every year on the gender pay gap so they have to actually state what the the state update uh, the british government and the, and the british public on a yearly basis as to the extent of the pay gap and then lay out you know plans a strategy to to, to amend it to resolve it so like our government is nowhere near that there's not, haven't been any sort of discussions along gender equity lines or or having any sort of gender-based analysis um, applied to our schedule benefits so those are kind of two two big steps that need to happen we need the government to take an interest and we need our medical associations to stand up for us. And then there's, there's a bunch of other smaller uh, kind of downstream issues that can be addressed by other people in leadership. So just getting more women past that glass ceiling and into leadership and busting up those old boys networks that, that prevent women from getting into positions of power um, Having fair uh, hiring standards, transparent advertising of hiring standards, gender parity on hiring committees and and things like that. And then anyone who's involved in medical education needs to address what we call the hidden curriculum, which is uh, one of those things, one of the the sort of subtle and not so sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle ways that we encourage women to go into lower paying specialties and encourage men to do the opposite and go into the higher paying specialties. So lots of different things that need to be done there um, and and different different, uh, groups that need to take action.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I I find it's interesting what you said about the UK, like having a mandate of yearly reporting Mm -hmm. around this subject, like we're going to keep an eye on it. We're going to stay on top of it. We're going to get some, build some data, which in your case, I mean, you know, like you were saying, like when you started, you couldn't find Canadian data, really.
1: Exactly. And if you're not looking for it, then you're not going to find it and you're not going to address it. And you're going to be very, very easy to pretend that it's not a, no longer a problem or it's never been a problem. And I think that's been the case in Canada. It's, it's it's just because no one's talking about it and we don't have good transparency on income and we don't have a lot of data on it, then it's very easy to say, well, this isn't really a problem. It doesn't really exist. But you got you, you to gotta look for things to find issues that you're going to deal with and not just let it be these conversations amongst women kind of in the MD lounge you know about mm. how frustrated they are with their careers <laughs> how they feel undervalued and underpaid
0: yeah definitely definitely because that's not if it's not getting out there to to it's, it's i mean obviously like it's a, a place where they feel comf- comfortable talking about this but it's not where it's going to necessarily make a difference mm. or change things and and all oh, that's great so um any last things you want to make sure that we talk about before um before we sign off here Um, well, so it's less of a,
1: of an income thing for physicians specifically, but I always try to make the point that, um, once now that we, that we're able to see that much of the gender pay gap does come from women looking after female, female physicians looking after female patients. I think we can actually do some work to flip that perspective and appreciate that the gender pay gap probably is a surrogate marker for underfunding in women's health. So, you know, in healthcare, we fund what we value. So if we're underfunding, the people and procedures that women tend to need in their, you know, women's health, but under that kind of women's health umbrella, those procedures and those things that 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 women in general seek out as patients. Um, If if the people who look after that and the procedures that are billed for that tend to be undervalued or underpaid, then what does that say about women's health as a whole? So I think it's kind of interesting from a future research perspective to see it as a as a surrogate market, not in the sense that like we need to pay female doctors more and so women's health will somehow improve, but just Mm -hmm that it's a surrogate marker and i think it's an interesting way to evaluate how uh how women's health might be um you know there might be some inequitable funding going on in terms of women's health so i think that's interesting for future future
0: research yeah it sounds like a deeper layer of mm-hmm. like this may be indicating something um even deeper about the perception around the value of women's health or the mm-hmm. the, the care that goes into that no mm-hmm. oh, very interesting very cool well thank you so much for joining me this is Definitely fascinating, something I knew nothing about before we <laughs> before we met. And um, uh, yeah, no, and you definitely have a lot of insight into it. And so I want to make sure that anyone who, uh, you know, knows where to follow you to learn more about this. So is Twitter the best place to do that then?
1: Yeah, yeah. Twitter's a good place to find me. Yep. And where's I'm the... At, I'm at uh, docmcohen, Doc D-O-C-M-C-O-H-E-N on
0: Twitter. Very good. And I know this is not related to what we're talking about, but I'm pretty sure the first Bernie Sanders mitten. Pictures or memes I saw were on your Twitter feed. So.
1: <laughs> Probably. I loved it. It was had a great some set really of memes. Good yeah. ones
0: in there. Right. And I was like, what is this? it? was like the first ones I'd seen. And I was like, what's going on here? And then it was just the next two days was just constant. Non like, oh, Yeah. It was non stop. The, the, the first ones I saw were yours. And it was like before it had really kind of taken off. But yeah, so that's a bit of an aside, I'm sure, of what you post about regularly, but it was very funny. <laughs> very cool. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me. Um, so everyone be sure to follow Dr. Cohen at Twitter at Doc M Cohen to stay on top of what you're discovering around this issue among other things. And I really appreciate you having joined me tonight.
1: Great. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to, great to
0: chat. Awesome. You take care. Okay. Hey there. Thank you so much for having listened to this episode. I'm honored that you took time out of your busy day to listen to this, or maybe you're multitasking like I do when I'm driving or doing yard work and listening to podcasts. So I hope you got a lot out of it. As always feel free to check out the free financial literacy challenge for Canadian physicians that I have put together you can hop on over to galenhelpsdocs.com to check that out g-a-l-e-n helpsdocs.com and if you've already taken it be sure to fill out the form at the end so you can claim your free prize that's a place where I cover a lot of the misconceptions around financial planning for Canadian physicians and then also cover a lot of the top topics and questions I get asked behind closed doors by doctors who want to understand more what they should be doing for retirement and how to manage their corporation so perfect feel free to check that out again Thank you so much for having joined me and take care.